You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. are now entering the Sapphire Planet. You are now in the Sapphire Planet. Two Thousand One, A Space Odyssey, is a nineteen sixty eight epic science fiction film produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick. The screenplay was written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, partially inspired by Clarke's short story, The Sentinel. Clarke concurrently wrote the novel 2001, A Space Odyssey, published soon after the film was released. The film follows a voyage to Jupiter with the sentient computer HAL after the discovery of a mysterious black monolith affecting human evolution. It deals with the themes of existentialism, human evolution, technology, artificial intelligence, and extraterrestrial life. It is noted for its scientifically accurate depiction of spaceflight, pioneering special effects, and ambiguous imagery. It uses sound and minimal dialogue in place of traditional narrative techniques. The soundtrack consists of classical music, such as The Blue Danube. 2001 A Space Odyssey was financed and distributed by American studio Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Metro but it was filmed and edited almost entirely in England where Kubrick lived using the studio facilities of the MGM British Studios and those of Shepperton Studios. Production was subcontracted to Kubrick's production company and care was taken that the film would be sufficiently British to qualify for subsidy from the Edit Levy. 2001 A Space Odyssey initially received mixed reactions from critics and audiences but it garnered a cult following and slowly became the highest grossing North American film of 1968. It was nominated for four Academy Awards and received one for its visual effects. The sequel, 2010, was released in 1984, 
directed by Peter Hams. Today, 2001 A Space Odyssey is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made. In 1991, it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. The critics' polls in the 2002 and 2012 edition of Sight and Sound magazine ranked 2001 Space Odyssey sixth in the top 10 films of all time. It also tied for second place in the director's poll of the same magazine. In 2010, it was named the greatest film of all time by the Moving Arts Film Journal. Here's the plot. In an African desert millions of years ago, a tribe of ape men is driven away from their waterhole by a rival tribe. They awaken to find a featureless black monolith has appeared before them. Guided in some fashion by the monolith, they learn how to use a bone as a weapon and drive their rivals away from the waterhole. Millions of years later, a Pan Am space plane carries Dr. Haywood Floyd to a space station orbiting Earth for a layover on his trip to Clavis Base, a United States outpost on the moon. After Floyd has a video phone call with his daughter, his Soviet scientist friend and her colleague ask about rumors of a mysterious epidemic at the base. Floyd declines to answer. At Clavis, Floyd heads to a meeting of base personnel apologizing for the epidemic cover story, but stressing secrecy. His mission is to investigate a recently found artifact buried four million years ago. Floyd and the other ride in the moon bus to the artifact, a monolith identical to the one encountered by the ape men. Sunlight strikes the monolith and a loud high-pitched radio signal is heard. 18 months later, the United States space spacecraft Discovery 1 is bound for Jupiter. On board are mission pilots and scientists Dr. David Bowman and Dr. Frank Pohl along with three other scientists in suspended animation. Most of Discovery's operations are controlled by the ship's computer, HAL 9000, referred to by the crew as HAL. HAL states that he is foolproof and incapable of error. When Bowman questions HAL on the purpose of the mission, HAL responds by reporting to the imminent failure of an antenna control device. The astronauts retrieve it in the EVA pod, but find nothing wrong. Hal suggests reinstalling the device and letting it fail so the problem can be found. Mission Control advises the astronauts that the results from their twin Hal 9000 indicate that Hal is an error. Hal insists that the problem, like previous issues described to Hal series units, is due to human error. Concerned about Hal's behavior, Bowman and Poole enter an EVA pod to talk without Hal overhearing and agree to disconnect Hal if he is proven wrong. Hal secretly follows their conversation by lip reading. While Poole is on a spacewalk outside his EVA pod attempting to replace the unit, Hal takes control of his pod, severs his oxygen hose and sets him adrift. 
Bowman takes another pod to attempt rescue. Meanwhile, Hal turns off the life support functions of the crewmen in suspended animation. When Bowman returns to the ship with Poole's body, Hal refuses to let him in, stating that the astronaut's plan to deactivate him jeopardizes the mission. Bowman opens the ship's emergency airlock manually, enters the ship, and proceeds to Hal's processor core. Hal tries to reassure Bowman, then pleads with him to stop and finally expresses fear. As Bowman gradually deactivates the circus circuits controlling Hal's higher intellectual functions, Hal regresses to his earliest program memory, the song Daisy Bell, which he sings for Bowman. When Bowman finally disconnects Hal, a pre-recorded video message from Floyd reveals the existence of the monolith on the moon, its purpose and origin unknown. With the exception of one short but extremely powerful radio emission aimed at Jupiter, the, job, the object has been inert. At Jupiter, Bowman leaves Discovery 1 in an EVA pod to investigate another monolith discovered in orbit around the planet. The pod is pulled into a vortex of colored light and Bowman races across vast distances of space, viewing bizarre cosmological phenomena and strange landscapes of unusual colors. Bowman finds himself in a bedroom appointed in the neoclassical style. He sees and then becomes older versions of himself, first standing in the bedroom, middle-aged and still in a spacesuit, then dressed in leisure attire and eating dinner, and finally as an old man lying in the bed. A monolith appears at the foot of the bed and Bowman reaches for it. He is transformed into a fetus enclosed in a transparent orb of light. The new being floats into space besides the earth, gazing at it. Development and Writing After completing Dr. Strangelove in 1964, Director Stanley Kubrick became fascinated with the possibility of extraterrestrial life and resolved to make the proverbial good science fiction movie. Searching for a collaborator in the science fiction community, Kubrick was advised by mutual acquaintance, Columbia Pictures staffer Roger Carras, to talk to writer Arthur C. Clarke. Although convinced that Clarke was a recluse, a nut who lives in a tree, Kubrick allowed Karras to cable the film proposal to Clark, who lived in Ceylon, which is now known as Sri Lanka. Clark's cable respondent stated that he was frightfully interested in working with the terrible and added, what makes Kubrick think I'm a recluse? Meeting for the first time at Trader Vic's in New York on April 22, 1964, the two began discussing the project that would take up the next four years of their lives. Clark kept a diary throughout his involvement with 2001, excerpts which were published in 1972 as The Lost Worlds of 2001. Kubrick told Clark he wanted to make a film about a man's relationship to the universe and was, in Clark's words, 
determined to create a work of art which would arouse the emotions of wonder, awe, even if appropriate, terror. Clark offered Kubrick six of his short stories, and by May 1964, Kubrick had chosen The Sentinel as the source material for the film. In the search of more material to expand the film's plot, the two spent the rest of 1964 reading books on science and anthropology, screening science fiction films and brainstorming ideas. They spent two years transforming The Sentinel into a novel and then into a script for 2001. Clark said that his short story, Encounter in the Dawn, inspired the film's Dawn of Man sequence. Kubrick and Clark privately referred to the project as How the Solar System Was Won, as a reference to MGM's 1962 Cinerama epic, How the West Was Won. On February 23, 1965, Kubrick issued a press release announcing the title, Journey Beyond the Stars. Other titles considered included Universe, Tunnel to the Stars, and Planetfall. In April 1965, 11 months after they began working on the project, Kubrick selected 2001 A Space Odyssey. Clark said the title was entirely Kubrick's idea. Intending to set the film apart from the monsters and sex type of science fiction films of the time, Kubrick used Homer's The Odyssey as inspiration for the title. Kubrick said, it occurred to us that for the Greeks, the vast stretches of the sea must have had the same sort of mystery and remoteness that space has for our generation. Kubrick and Clark planned to develop the 2001 novel first, free of the constraints of film, and then write the screenplay. They planned the writing credits to be screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, based on a novel by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick, to reflect their preeminence in their respective fields. In practice, the screenplay developed in parallel to the novel, and elements were shared between both. In 1970, Kubrick in an interview said, there are a number of differences between the book and the movie. The novel, for example, attempts to explain things much more explicitly than the film does, which is inevitable in a verbal medium. The novel came about after we did a 130-page prose treatment of the film at the very outset. This initial treatment was subsequently changed in the screenplay, and the screenplay in turn was altered during the making of the film. But Arthur took all the existing material, plus an impression of some of the rushes, and wrote the novel. As a result, there's a difference between the novel and the film. I think the divergence between the two works are interesting. The screenplay credits were shared, whereas the 2001 novel, released shortly after the film, was attributed to Clark alone. Clark wrote later that, the nearest approximation to the complicated truth is that the screenplay should be credited to Kubrick and Clark and the novel to Clark and Kubrick. Clark and Kubrick wrote the novel and screenplay simultaneously, 
Clark opted for cleaner explanations of the mysterious monolith and Stargate in the novel. Kubrick made the film more cryptic by minimizing dialogue and explanation. Kubrick said the film is a basically a visual nonverbal experience that hits the viewer at the inner level of consciousness, just as music does, or painting. Astronomer Carl Sagan wrote in his book, The Cosmic Connection, that Clark and Kubrick asked his opinion on how to best depict extraterrestrial intelligence. Sagan, while acknowledging Kubrick's desire to use actors to portray humanoid aliens for convenience's sake, argued that alien life forms were unlikely to bear any resemblance to terrestrial life, and that to do so would introduce at least an element of falseness to the film. Sagan proposed that the film suggest, rather than depict, extraterrestrial superintelligence. He attended the premiere and was pleased to see that I had been of some help. Kubrick hinted at the nature of the mysterious unseen alien race in 2001 by suggesting in a 1968 interview that, given millions of years of evolution, they progressed from biological beings to immortal machine entities, and then into beings of pure energy and spirit, beings with limitless capabilities and ungraspable intelligence. The script went through many stages. In early 1965, when backing was secured for the film, Clark and Kubrick still had no firm idea what would happen to Bowman after the Stargate sequence. Initially, all of the Discovery astronauts were to survive the journey. By October 3rd, Clark and Kubrick had decided to leave Bowman the sole survivor and have him regress to infancy. By October 17th, Kubrick had come up with what Clark called a wild idea of robots who create a Victorian environment to put our heroes at their ease. HAL 9000 was originally named Athena after the Greek goddess of wisdom and had a feminine voice and persona. Early drafts included a prologue containing interviews with scientists about extraterrestrial life. Voiceover narration, a feature in all of Kubrick's previous films, a stronger emphasis on the prevailing Cold War balance of terror, and a different and more explicitly explained breakdown for how. Other changes include a different monolith for the Dawn of Man sequence, discarded when early prototypes did not photograph well. The use of Saturn as the final des destination of Discovery Mission rather than Jupiter, discarded when the special effects team could not develop a convincing rendition of Saturn's rings and the finale of the star child exploding nuclear weapons carried by Earth orbiting satellites, which Kubrick discarded for its similarities of his previous film, Dr. Strangelove. The finale and many other discarded screenplay ideas survived into Clark's novel. Kubrick made further changes due to his desire to make the film more nonverbal communicating at a visual and visceral level rather than through conventional narrative. 
One author writes that Clark's novel has strong narrative structure, while the film is mainly a visual experience while much remains symbolic. Although the film leaves it mysterious, early script drafts made clear that Hal's breakdown is triggered by authorities on Earth who order him to withhold information from the astronauts without the purpose of the mission. This is also explained in the film's sequel, 2010. Frederick Ordway, Kubrick's science advisor and technical consultant, stated that in an earlier script, Poole tells Hal there is something about the mission that we weren't told, something the rest of the crew knows and that you know. We would like to know whether this is true. To which Hal responds, I'm sorry, Frank, I don't think I can answer that question without knowing everything that all you know. Hal then falsely predicts a failure of the hardware maintaining radio contact with Earth, the source of Hal's difficult orders, during the broadcast of Frank Poole's birthday greeting from his parents. The final script removed this explanation, but it is hinted at when Hal asks David Bowman if Bowman is bothered by the oddities and tight security surrounding the mission. After Bowman concludes that Hal is dutifully drawing up the crew psychology report, the computer makes his false prediction of hardware failure. Another hint occurs at the moment of Hal's deactivation, when a video reveals the purpose of the mission. In an interview in 1969, Kubrick stated that Hal had an acute emotional crisis because he could not accept evidence of his own fallibility. Kubrick originally planned a voiceover to reveal that the satellites seen after the prologue are nuclear weapons, and that the star child would detonate the weapons at the end of the film. However, he decided this would create associations with his previous film, Dr. Strangelove, and decided not to make it so obvious that they were war machines. A few weeks before the release of the film, the U.S. and the Soviet government had agreed not to put any nuclear weapons into outer space. In a book he wrote with Kubrick's assistants, Alexander Walker states that Kubrick eventually decided that, as nuclear weapons, the bombs had no place at all in the film's thematic development, now being an orbiting red herring, which would merely have raised irrelevant questions to suggest this was as a reality of the 21st century. Some Kubrick scholars discussing Kubrick's attitude toward human aggression and instinct observe, the bone cast into the air by the ape, now become a man, is transformed at the other extreme of civilization by one of those abrupt ellipses characteristic of the director into a spacecraft on its way to the moon. In contrast, the reading of a cut to a serene other extreme civilization, science fiction novelist speaking at the Canadian documentary 2001 Beyond, saw it as a cut from bone to nuclear weapons platform, explaining that what we see is not how far we've leaped ahead. What we see that is today, 2001, and four million years ago on the African savanna is exactly the same. 
The power of mankind is the power of its weapons. It is a continuation, not a discontinuity in that jump. The film contains no dialogue for the first and last 20 minutes. By the time the shooting began, Kubrick had removed much of the dialogue and narration. What remains is a notable for its banality, making the computer howl to seem to have more emotion than the humans, juxtaposed with epic space scenes. The first scene of dialogue are Floyd's encounters on the space station, chit-chat with a colleague who greets him, his telephone call to his daughter, and the friendly but strained encounter with Soviet scientists. Later en route to the monolith, Floyd engages in trite exchanges with his staff, while a spectacular journey by Earthlight, Earthlight across the lunar surface is shown. Hal is the only character who expresses anxiety, as well as the feelings of pride and bewilderment. Kubrick's decision to avoid the fanciful portrayals of space in standard popular science fiction films of the time led him to seek a more realistic and scientifically accurate visualization of space travel. Illustrators were hired to produce concept drawings, sketches, and paintings of the space technology seen in the film. Two educational films that came out previously the 1960 National Film Board of Canada, Canada, an animated short documentary, Universe, and the 1964 New York's World Fair movie, To the Moon and Beyond, were very influential. Universe was a visual inspiration to Kubrick. The 29-minute film, which had also proved popular at NASA for its realistic portrayals of outer space, achieved the standard of dynamic visionary realism that he was looking for. One of the special effects artists on Universe worked briefly on 2001. Kubrick also asked Universe co-director Colin Lowe about animation camera work, with Lowe recommending British mathematician Brian Salt, with whom Lowe and Roman Kreuter had previously worked in the 1957 still animation documentary, City of Gold. Universe would have had one more influence on 2001 when its narrator, Douglas Rain, relatively unknown outside of Canada, was cast as the voice of Hal. After pre-production had begun, Kubrick saw the 1964 World's Fair film to the Moon and Beyond, a film shown in the transportation and travel building that had been filmed in Cinerama 360 and was being shown in the Moon Dome, he ended up hiring the company that produced it, Graphic Films Corporation, which had been making films for NASA, U.S. Air Force, and various aerospace clients as a design consultant. Graphic films Con Pedersen, Lester Novoris, and background artist Douglas, Douglas Trumbull would airmail research-based concept sketches and notes covering the mechanics and physics of space travel and go on to create storyboards for the spaceflight sequences seen in the film. 
Trumbull would go on to become the special effects supervisor on 2001. Finally, it's time to shoot the film. Principal photography began December 29, 1965, in Stage H at Shepperton Studios, Shepperton, England. The studio was chosen because it could house the 60 by 120 by 60 foot pit for the Tycho Crater excavation scene, the first to be shot. The production moved in January 1966 to the smaller MGM British Studios in Borehamwood, where the live action and special effects filmings was done, starting with the scenes involving Floyd on the Orion space plane. It was described as a huge throbbing nerve center with much of the same frantic atmosphere as Cape Kennedy Blockhouse during the final stages of Countdown. The only scene not filmed in a studio and the last live action scene shot for the film was the skull smashing sequence in which Moonwatcher wields his new found bone weapon tool against a pile of nearby animal bones. A small elevated platform was built in a field near the studio so that the camera could shoot upward with the sky as a background, avoiding cars and trucks passing by in the distance. Filming of actors was completed in September 1967, and from June 1966 until March 1968, Kubrick spent most of his time working on the 205 special effects shots in the film. The director ordered the special effects technician on 2001 to use the painstaking process of creating all visual effects seen in the film in camera, avoiding degraded picture quality from the use of blue screen and traveling Mac techniques. Although this technique known as held takes resulted in a much better image. It meant exposed film would be stored for long periods of time between shots, sometimes as long as a year. In March 1968, Kubrick finished the pre-premiere editing of the film, making his final cuts just days before the film's general release in April 1968. The film was announced in 1965 as a Cinerama film, and it was photographed in Super Panavision 70, which uses a 65mm negative combined with special spherical lenses to create the aspect ratio of 2 to 20 to 1. It would eventually be released in a limited roadshow Cinerama version, then in a 70mm and 35mm versions. Color processing and 35mm release prints were done using Technicolor's dye transfer process. The 70mm prints were made by MGM Laboratories on Metricolor. The production was $4.5 million over the initial $6 million budget and 16 months behind schedule. For the opening sequence, involving tribes of apes. Professional mime Daniel Richter, in addition to playing the lead ape, 
was also responsible for choreographing the movements of the other man-apes, who were mostly portrayed by his standing mime troupe. Kubrick involved himself in every aspect of production, even choosing the fabric for his actors' costumes and selecting notable pieces of contemporary furniture for use in the film. When Floyd exits the Space Station 5 elevator, he is greeted by an attendant seated behind a slightly modified George Nelson Action Office desk from Herman Miller's 1964 Action Office series. First introduced in 1968, the Action Office-style cubicle would eventually occupy 70% of office space by the mid-2000s. Danish designer Arne Jacobsen designed the culture used by the Discovery astronauts in the film. Other examples of modern furniture in the film are the bright red Dijin chairs seen prominently throughout the space station, and Euro Saren's 1956 pedestal stables, tables. Oliver Morg, designer of the Dijin chair, has used the connection to 2001 in his advertising, a frame from the film's space station sequence, and three production stills appear on the homepage of Morg's website. Shortly before Kubrick's death, a film critic informed Kubrick of Morg's use of the film, joking to him, you're keeping the price up. Commenting on their use in the film, the critic says, everyone recalls one early sequence in the film, the Space Hotel, primarily because the custom-made Oliver Morg furnishings, those foam-filled sofas, undulated and serpentine are covered in scarlet fabric and are the first slabs of color one sees. They resemble Rorschach blots against the pristine purity of the rest of the lobby. Detailed instructions in relatively small print for various technological devices appears at several points in the film, the most visible of which are the lengthy instructions for the zero-gravity toilet on the Ares moon shuttle. Similar detailed instructions for replacing the explosive bolts also appear on the hatches on the EVA pods, most visibly in close-up, just before Bowman's pod leaves the ship to rescue Frank Poole. The film features an extensive use of Euro-style bold extensa, extended, Futura, and other sans-serif typefaces as design elements in the 2001 world. Computer displays show high-resolution fonts, color, and graphics far in advance of computers in the 1960s when the film was made. Two thousand and one pioneered the use of front projection with retro-reflective matting. Kubrick used the technique to produce the backdrops in the African scenes and the scene when the astronaut walks on the moon. The technique consists of separate scenery projectors set at a right angle to the camera and a half-silvered mirror placed at an angle in front of the reflected 
the project image forward in line with the camera lens onto a backdrop made of retroflective material. The reflective directional screen behind the actors could reflect light from the projected image a hundred times more efficiently than the foreground subject did. The lighting on the foreground subject had to be balanced with the image from the screen, making the image from the scenery projector on the subject too faint to record. The exception was the eyes of the leopard in the dawn of the man sequence, which glowed orange from the projector illumination. Kubrick described this as a happy accident. Front projection had been used in smaller settings before 2001, mostly for still photography or television production, using small still images and projectors. The expansive backdrops for the African scenes required a screen 40 feet tall and 110 feet wide, far larger than had been used before. When the reflective material was applied to the backdrop in 100-foot strips, Variations at the seams of the strips led to visual artifacts. To solve this, the crew tore the material into smaller chunks and applied them in random camouflage pattern on the backdrop. The existing projectors using a 4 by 5 inch transparencies resulted in grainy images when projected that large, so the crew worked with MGM's special effects supervisor, Tom Howard, to build a custom projector using 8 by 10 inch transparencies, which required the largest water-cooled arc lamp available. The technique was used widely in the film industry afterwards, until it was replaced by blue green screen systems in the 1990s. To heighten the reality of the film, very intricate models of the various spacecrafts and locations were built. Their sizes ranged from about two foot long models of satellites and the Ares Translunar Space Shuttle up to 55 foot long Discovery 1 spacecraft. In-camera techniques were again used as much as possible to combine models and background shots together to prevent degradation of the image through continual duplicating. In shots where there was no perspective change, still shots of the models were photographed and positive paper prints were made. The image of the model was cut out of the photographic print and mounted on glass and filmed on an animation stand. The undeveloped film was rewound to film the star background with the silhouette of the model photograph acting as a mat to block out where the spaceship image was. Shots where the spacecraft had parts in motion or the perspective change were shot by directly filming the model. For most shots, the model was stationary and camera was driven along a track on a special mount, the motor of which was mechanically linked to the camera motor, making it possible to repeat camera moves and match speeds exactly. Elements of the scene were recorded on the same piece of film in separate passes to combine the lit model, stars, planets, and or other spacecraft in the same shot. In moving shots of the Long Discovery 1 spacecraft, in order to keep the entire model in focus, multiple passes had to be made with the lighting on its blocked out section by the section. Each pass, the camera would be focused on the one lit section. 
Many matting techniques were tried to block out the stars behind the models, with filmmakers sometimes resorting to hand tracing frame by frame around the image of the spacecraft to create the mat. This method is also known as rotoscoping. Some shots required exposing the film again to record previously filmed live action shots of the people appearing in the windows, the spacecraft, or the structures. Achieved by mounting projection devices inside the model or when two-dimensional photographs were used, projecting from the backside through a hole cut in the photograph. All of the shots required multiple takes so that some film could be developed and printed to check exposure, density, alignment of elements, and to supply footage used in further elements such as matting. For spacecraft interior shots, ostensibly containing a giant centrifuge that produces artificial gravity, Kubrick had a 30 short-ton rotating Ferris wheel built by Vickers Armstrong Engineering Group at a cost of three quarters of a million dollars. It was, the set was 38 feet in diameter and 10 feet wide. Various scenes in the Discovery Centrifuge were shot by securing set pieces within the wheel, then rotating it while the actor walked or ran in sync with its motion, keeping him at the bottom of the wheel as it turned. The camera could be fixed to the inside of the rotating wheel to show the actor walking completely around the set or mounted in such a way that the wheel rotated independently of the stationary camera, as in the jogging scene when the camera appears to alternately precede and follow the running actor. The shots where the actors appear on opposite sides of the wheel required one of the actors to be strapped securely into place at the top of the wheel as it had moved to allow the other actor to walk to the bottom of the wheel to join him. The most notable case is when Bowman enters the centrifuge from the central, central hub on a ladder and joins Poole who is eating on the other side of the centrifuge. This required Gary Lockwood to be strapped into a seat while Kerr Dulia walked forward towards him from the opposite side of the wheel as it turned with him. Another rotating set appeared in an earlier sequence on board the Ares Translunar Shuttle. The stewardess is shown preparing in-flight meals, then carrying them into a circular walkway. Attached to the set as it rotates 180 degrees, the camera's point of view remains constant and she appears to walk up the side of the circular walkway and steps now in an upside down orientation into a connecting hallway. The realistic looking effects of the astronauts floating weightless in space and inside the spacecraft were accomplished by suspending the actors from wires attached to the top of the set and placing the camera underneath them. The actors' bodies blocked the camera's view of the suspension wires, creating a very believable appearance of floating. For the shot of Poole floating into the pod's arms during Bowman's rescue attempt, a stuntman replaced a dummy 
on the wire to realistically portray the movement of an unconscious human, and it was shot in slow motion to enhance the illusion of drifting through space. The scene showing Bowman entering the emergency airlock from the EVA pod was done in a similar way. An off-camera stagehand standing on a platform held the wire suspended de Lua above the camera positioned at the bottom of the vertically configured airlock. At the proper moment, the stagehand first loosened his grip on the wire, causing de Lua to fall towards the camera. Then while holding the wire firmly, he jumped off the platform, causing de Lua to ascend back up towards the hatch. The colored lights in the Stargate sequence were accomplished by split-scan photography of thousands of high-contrast images on film, including op-art paintings, architectural drawings, moray patterns, printed circuits, and electron microscope photographs of molecular and crystal structures. Known to the staff as Manhattan Project, the shots of various nebula-like phenomena, including the expanding star field, were colored paints and chemicals swirling in a pool-like device known as a cloud tank, shot in slow motion in a dark room. The live action landscape shots in the Stargate sequence were filmed in the Hebridean Islands, the mountains of Northern Scotland, and Monument Valley. The color and negative images effects were achieved by using different color filters in the process of making duplicate negatives. From very early in the production, Kubrick decided that he wanted the film to be primarily non-verbal experience that did not rely on traditional techniques of narrative cinema and which music would play a vital role in invoking particular moods. About half the music in the film appears either before the first line of dialogue or after the final line. Almost no music is heard during any scenes with dialogue. The film is notable for its innovative use of classical music, taking from existing commercial recordings. Most feature films then and now are typically accompanied by elaborate film scores or songs written specifically for the, for the films by professional composers. In the early stages of production, Kubrick had actually commissioned a score for 2001 from Hollywood composer Alex North, who had written the score for Spartacus and had also worked on Dr. Strangelove. However, during post-production, Kubrick chose to abandon North's music in favor of the now familiar classic pieces he had early chosen as guide pieces for the soundtrack. North did not know of the abandonment of the score until after he saw the, the film's premiere screening. Also engaged to score the film was composer Frank Cordell. Cordell stated that in interviews that the score would primarily consist of arrangements of Gustav Mahler works. This score remains unreleased. Like North's score, 
Cordell's work was recorded at the now-demolished Anvil Denham Studios. He, too, did not know until the premiere that all the work that he did on his score was not going to be used in the movie. Two thousand and one is particularly remembered for using John Johann Strauss's best-known waltz, the Blue Danube. Your journey is now ending. the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.